Romans 9, 1 through 18. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears, witness, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the world of the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our, full, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that you might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Thank you, Chris. Um, let me open us in prayer, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, go ahead and take a look at the, the text. Um, Lord, uh, you are good to your people. And uh, reading through the psalm this morning, I, uh, I, I was just so moved at the cry to you for justice. Lord, there's only so much we can do. There's only so far we can go. And Lord, ultimately, we look to you for our deliverance. Uh, Lord, and, and your promise is that you have delivered us from all our enemies. And those are not just um, bad people who don't like us, but Lord, things that we could never touch. They are our own sin, our own guilt, um, our own unworthiness, Lord. Um, they're the Satan who opposes, who accuses, who stands before you and, and tells us how bad we are. Lord, they're the world which acts as if you don't matter or you don't exist and, and calls our hearts after those things. And Lord, you deliver us from all of those enemies. You, you deliver all the foes that we face and all those we're not even aware of. And so thank you for that, Father. Thank you for your goodness to your people. And uh, Lord, we want to pray for um, uh, the nation and the world as we continue to trod through this uh, this pandemic. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bring it to a, a swift conclusion. Father, that uh, through your grace of uh, medical miracles that you, you've given human race repeatedly, Lord, we pray for a vaccine that would be effective. Lord, for um, treatments for those who are suffering from uh, COVID-19. Um, and Lord, we've heard of uh, handfuls uh, personally connected with us who, who have gone through it. And, and we thank you for the deliverance for those who you delivered, and uh, we just pray for those who um, who will get it in the future, Lord, that there may be treatments that are effective. So have mercy on us um, for your name's sake. Uh, we certainly don't deserve it, but Lord, for your name's sake, would you show mercy? And uh, Father, I want to pray for the upcoming election, as the uh, the election cycle is is very hot, and there's a lot of emotions and and um, a lot of tension around it. Uh, Father, you have uh, shown us in this nation that it is possible for us to conduct ourselves well, for um, uh, to, to handle the, the authority that you've given the people of America and the right to vote. And we just pray for you again to, Lord, would you raise up the right leader at the right time according to your purpose? 
And uh, Lord, we pray for uh, that leader, whoever that might be um, in the next election. Uh, Father, would you give them wisdom and grace? And Lord, we pray for that uh, so that your church might have peace in America and that we can continue with the, the mission that you've given us to, to preach the gospel. Um, Father, I want to pray for Joanne Sadler and her daughter Cindy as both are facing upcoming surgeries. Uh, Lord, would you um, give the doctors care and wisdom? Uh, Father, I pray that the surgeries would go smoothly and well and that uh, both ladies would recover. And Father, I pray for Judy Kempel and her um, lack of stamina lately. Uh, I pray that the doctors would be able to help her get to the bottom of what it is, um, whether it's nutritional or hormonal or who knows, Lord, um, but you do, you know. And so would you uh, strengthen her? And I pray, pray your blessing on the Kempels. Lord, be with us now as we turn to your word and may we um, hear and understand what it is that you have to say to us so that we might know and love you more. And that's, that's the ultimate application of any of the scriptures, Lord, is that we might know you better. And so do that, we pray, in our, in, um, in our time now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, welcome back. Um, I, I thought that Bob did a really great job with the, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there were some really good things that he said in there. I love that idea of prayer being repeating God's promises back to him. Um, think about Jesus saying, if you ask anything according to the Father's will, it will be done for you. And so to pray God's promises back to him is a guarantee that you're praying in accordance with God's will. Uh, there's just no way that's ever going to fail. So um, some really helpful things. And what I want to do with that is, is I hope in the next couple of weeks to figure out a way for us to pray together Um it would be nice if we could get together physically to pray, but we've got to figure something out because I really feel like uh, the, the, the health of the nation, the health of our church, the trajectory of where we're going as a people, um, we really need to be praying. So uh, if you have any ideas on how we might do that well and safely, shoot them my way. Uh, but uh, I, I would love to apply what Bob has taught us in that time in prayer. So that's where we're going to go. Um, now, we're back to Romans, and uh, it's been a month, so what I want to do real quick is kind of recap uh, what Romans is about so far, where we've come through Romans, and then we'll go to our, our next section. So if you remember, my theory on why Paul wrote Romans was because uh, at the end of Romans, he says that he's planning on visiting them as he presses on to go into Spain because his work has been completed uh, in the Mediterranean basin. There's no place else for him to work. So my theory is uh, that he is writing to the Romans because he's never met them yet. Um, he will, because we know in Acts, he gets arrested and sent to Rome. But um, he's writing to them to say, when I move my, my effort into Spain, I'll be too far away from my home base in Syria, in, in Syria, in Antioch. And so I would like you, Rome, to be my home base. So would you do that? Can we partner and, and look what we're going to do together? And so he lays out... His, his philosophy of mission, his theology for them, uh, hoping that, that they will uh, think that that's a beautiful thing that they'd want to support. Uh, because he will be pressing on into Spain, it, it's important to have a home base that he can come back to. Um, Greece is closer to Spain, so why doesn't he base himself out of Corinth or, or um, Thessalonica or something? Well, it's because Rome is the center of the world at that point, and there will be so much travel and so much commerce coming and going from Rome, it'll be really easy for him to travel there. So that's that's my theory of why he wrote the book of Romans to the Romans. Why did he write that? But what does he say in it? What is his theme? And if you remember, I took Romans 1.16 as really what I think his thesis statement is. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So that's kind of his thesis statement. He's talking about his gospel, his good news, and it is the power of God. It's not our ability. It's the power of God for salvation. And he says, we need salvation. Everybody needs salvation. God affects that salvation. And who is it available for? It's available for everybody, not simply the Jew, not simply the Greek. It's available for everybody. And how do we get that salvation? It's available to everyone who believes. It is by faith alone. And so that's his theorist thesis statement for the book of Romans. Now, we got up and through uh, Romans 8. We finished Romans 8. 
And then I did Romans 13 just to talk about politics for a little bit, a Christian approach to politics. So let me recap those first eight chapters for us. Um, first of all, chapters one through three, he establishes the need for everyone to be saved. And you'll remember he goes through from the most self-indulgent Gentile who knows nothing about God. He, um, he goes through them. He talks about people who are moralists, who uh, think that they can uh, be better people because they're, they're doing or not doing. And then he even gets to the Jew and he says, even the observant Jew, they all need to be saved. And that's, that's chapters one through three. It culminates in that long list of there is none who seek after God. No, not one. All have turned aside and he just keeps going. So once he's established the need for salvation, then in chapters four through six, he explains to us how are we saved? And that's where he talks about and unpacks the doctrine of justification. And uh, if you remember what I said with justification was, is it's not being declared innocent. Uh, being declared innocent is not sufficient. It's not enough to be saved. We need to be declared actively righteous. And so that word justification, we said, is a, uh, is a legal term. And it's, it's a courtroom uh, word that's used to say this person is not just innocent, but they're actually good. And so God declares us just. He declares us to be right. And one of the questions that comes up in chapters four through six is how is God just and the justifier of those who are ungodly? How does he do that? Well, the way he does it is not just by saying, poof, you're just, but he takes a foreign righteousness. He takes the righteousness of God. He takes Jesus' righteousness and he gives it to us so that we're seen with that righteousness on us. And so how do we get that justification? How do we, we get that righteousness? What Paul stresses over and over in four through six is it's through faith alone. And that's right out of his thesis statement for those who believe, not those who work hard enough. So we are justified by faith alone, verse chapters four through six. And then in seven and eight, he talks about this, uh, this concept of sanctification. So we have been justified. We've been declared righteous in God's sight. Um, does that mean that we can go on in sin? That was one of the questions Paul asked. And he says, by no means. Don't you understand what's happened to you? Uh, God has justified you. And so now he adopts you, brings him, you into his family. And now he begins to conform you to the image of Jesus. He makes you more like his son. So what we do is we grow now into that identity that we've had. We've been declared righteous, and now God grows us into that. Um, he, he sanctifies us. He makes us holy. And, and at the end of um, Romans 8, there's this wonderful statement, verse 29 and 30. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so what we talked about with that idea of God's foreknowledge, he foreknew you. It's not um, a, a, a knowledge of a fact like uh, this person will do this thing at this time. It's not something that, that distant, although it does include that. It's not that distant. What we saw is foreknowledge really has to do with relationship. It has to do with having a relationship with somebody. And so God is, before we've even been born or created, God has this, has this relationship established with us in Christ. And so he foreknows us. And since he foreknows us, he predestined, he worked out all the things in our life to make us come to the point where we'd be conformed to the image of his son. And to do that, to get us to that point, he calls us. He sends out a general call to the world, turn to Christ and be saved. But those he foreknew and predestined, he calls in a way that they will answer. They will come and turn to Christ. And so they will turn and, uh, and come to him. And then he justifies them by faith. And then at the end, he says, and he glorified in the past tense. And uh, what I said at the time was that trajectory, since those first few steps are so secure because God has done them, Paul is actually thinking, and so our glorification, where we're freed from sin, our bodies are made new because they're resurrected, they're set free from the bondage of sin and slavery. That end result is depending on these other steps, and it might as well have happened because it's so secure. 
So that was the end of, of chapter eight. After that, Paul just breaks into doxology. He just praises God for who, how uh, wonderful he is that he would do these things. So the book of Romans could have ended there and it would just be an amazing book. That would be just, you know, uh, wipe a tear from your eye. It's such a beautiful story, but there's some things missing. For one, there's no application. Paul hasn't applied it yet. And generally, when you read through Paul's epistles, what you'll see him do is some theology up front and then application in the, in the last part. So there's no application yet. So Paul's not done writing. But there's another thing that happens. And there is a problem. And it's a problem that he has brought up previously. And now he's going to go ahead and flush it out. And the problem is, what about Israel? Um, what, what about them? And so... Uh, we're going to now go ahead and look at that question. And it's actually going to take Paul three chapters to answer that question. Um, what we're going to see today is kind of the beginning of his answer. And then as we go through uh, the other chapters, he'll flush it out and build it bigger and bigger uh, until chapter 11, we'll get to the crescendo of the whole thing and understand hopefully how Israel fits into that and how we're secure. But for us, we have to kind of go back and look at chapter three again. In chapter three, right at the very beginning, Paul says, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? So he, he, he in chapter three, he has established that both Jew and Gentile need to be saved. They're equally bad. So chapter three, verse one, he asks, well, what, what's so special about being Jewish or being circumcised? And he, he says, now, hold on. It's, there's much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so he, he says, look, they have many blessings to begin with. Well, we're going to pick up and answer some more of that today. What if some were unfaithful? If they've been entrusted with the oracles of God, if they've been given circumcision, if they have these blessings, what if some are unfaithful? Does, that, uh, does their faithless, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every man were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So Paul now comes back to that question. He just kind of tipped it there, but now he comes back and he's going to unpack that for us. So here's the issue. How can we know that our salvation is secure? At the end of chapter eight, I said it was because God foreknew us. He predestined us. He justified us. He called us. And if ultimately he will glorify us. How can we be sure of that? At the time, we were asking the question, how could we be sure we'd be saved? And, and it was because God has done all these things. And so now we need to come back and look at that again, because how can we be sure that if God has done those things, that we will be saved? Israel was chosen. Um, Amos 3.2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Israel was chosen. Israel was adopted. Exodus 4.22, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. He, he adopted them. And Israel was called. Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I, call, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So if those things were done for Israel, if they were given to, him, uh, given to them, then how can we have any confidence that our salvation is sure? Because what Paul says here at the beginning of chapter 8 is there is a problem. And so he said, he begins by saying, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, promise, I swear this is true, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So what Paul is about to address here is not some theoretical, theological issue that he's going to wrestle with. For Paul, what we're about to talk about is extraordinarily personal, and it, it doesn't just trouble him that this, this, I can't get an answer to this, it grieves him, and he has unceasing anguish. Why is that? Because what he says is, for I could wish myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brother, my kinsman according to the flesh. In other words, what Paul is saying is, he's looking at his nation, and he's saying, most of them don't believe. And that's not some arbitrary, you know, over there arm's length thing for Paul. Paul has got names and faces attached to this, this feeling. That's why it grieves him deeply. He's got probably family members who are rejecting this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has friends who he has studied with and worked with who have heard what he's had to say and rejected it. 
remember from Acts, his, his teacher Gamaliel uh, opposed Peter and John in, the, in, the, um, in the, the temple as they were preaching the gospel. He had a relationship, a master discipleship relationship with Gamaliel, and he doesn't believe. So when Paul says, my heart is grieved and I'm in unceasing anguish, it's because he has faces and names that he thinks of. I remember hearing years ago, the lost will remain the lost until they have names and faces. So we can talk about the lost as a category and keep it at arm's length. And, and it's, you know, something theoretical and, and, and a, you know, over there until you know somebody, until you think of the lost has this face and this name. And then the response is unceasing anguish and, um, and great sorrow. This person is lost and, and there's such a tremendous treasure offered to them. But for Paul, it's even more intense because his kinsmen are the Israelites. And, and listen to what he has to say about them. He says, they are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ. So they have had all of these benefits. That's, that's what he said in chapter two. These Jews have been given all of these benefits and yet don't believe. And, and so if Israel has rejected their Messiah after having all of this, after having been foreknown and predestined and called, um, how can we have the assurance that if he does that to us, that we won't be lost? Um, it's a huge problem. It is, it is really a grievous problem for Paul. And that's why he's going to take a long time to flesh it out. It's going to take a while to work through that. Uh, so first of all, it's, it's not theoretical. It's not abstract. It's not some category of people. It's personal. And if that's true for them, then, then how can we be sure of our salvation? And Paul's answer is simple. God has mercy. And so let's look through the rest of this now. That, that's the problem. What we'll look at in the next section is the promise, or I mean, the, the, uh, the uh, purpose. And then the last section will be the promise. So the problem is Israel had all of these advantages and they were lost. How, how can we be sure that God won't lose us? And so here's, here's his purpose. Here, this is what happens. This is verses 9 through 12 or 13. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all, um, not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About a year, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election may continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated. So Paul begins with, but it's not as the, though the word of God has failed. So he is looking at his countrymen. He's looking at his relatives, his friends, his co-workers, his teachers, his pupils. And they're, they're largely rejecting the Messiah. And his response is, but it's not as if God failed here. So the, the, the struggle, the emotional turmoil that he's in, the answer to it is God's faithfulness. That's how he begins to resolve that, that, those, those feelings. Paul's grieved. But he has hope in God. He's trusting God's testimony. And so he says this incredible thing. Not all, um, not all Israel are Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And, and this is not something that is unique to Paul. This is not something that's brand new with the writing of the book of Romans. Uh, John the Baptist said the same thing in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. John the Baptist is out in the wilderness preaching and as he's preaching, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So even John the Baptist coming out and making these announcements is saying, 
just because you're of this nation, just because this is your genealogy, don't come to me and say that that's sufficient. It's not. Not all Israel are Israel. And Jesus himself says the same thing. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 39, he's arguing with these Jews who've believed, air quotes, believed in him. And uh, they're arguing with him. And so they answer him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works that your father did. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So do you see what he's saying? He's looking at these Jews who have the pedigree, they have the, 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 um, the lineage, they can name the tribes and the forefathers. And he says, Abraham is not your father. Because if Abraham was your father, you would be doing what Abraham did and you would delight to see me and you're not doing that. So he throws kind of a shade at him. He says, uh, you're doing the works of your father. And what he's about to tell them is, uh, by the way, your dad is Satan because that's what he's done. And so that's the problem is, is not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So this idea of the covenant flowing to uh, the children, it doesn't flow along uh, a genealogy. It's based on promise. And so the, the evidence that Paul raises for that is Isaac. In uh, chapter 18, he quotes uh, God, uh, Genesis 18, he quotes God saying, about this time next year, I'm going to return and Sarah is going to have a son. Now, don't forget the story there. Sarah had been barren her entire life. And God came and made a promise to Abraham in a covenant. And he said, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. And Abraham believes him. He, he, he accepts that and it's credited to him as righteousness. But he doesn't know how it's going to come about because Sarah's still not having kids and she ain't getting any younger. So Sarah comes up with the idea, take my handmaid, take my maiden, my, my servant, and go into her and produce offspring from her. And, and that way we'll help God get this answer because she's mine. I own her. And so I'll take her offspring as my own. And, and so they have a child and his name is Ishmael and he's rejected. So in, in chapter 22, um, when Isaac is born and he's now grown, God says to take him up on, um, on the mountain. He says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Jacob, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So God calls Isaac his own son, his only son, even though Ishmael is, is alive and well and in the house. Um, God didn't recognize Ishmael as legitimate offspring of Abraham. Um, if I can complicate that a little bit more, uh, Paul only mentions uh, uh, Isaac being born. There's more to that story than just Ishmael. And we tend to focus on Ishmael. If you remember um, at the end of Abraham's story, at the beginning of the, the uh, uh, Isaac's story, it says kind of tangentially, oh, and by the way, Abraham took these other uh, concubines. He took these other wives and, and he had all these children. And here's the children that he had, but he sent them away so that Isaac would be the one to inherit. Now, it could be that Abraham at 160 or whatever he was, I think he died at 175, he could have taken a wife and had those children. That's God has done that. That's not impossible. It's also possible that what happened was throughout the story of Abraham, he had these concubines we never heard about um, because there are an awful lot of children. And the only way that's going to work is over a period of time. But they're concubines. They're not married. And so they don't count. So it's not just... Abraham and I, or Isaac and, and Ishmael, it's also all of Abraham's other offspring are not counted. Um, even when, when God, or Isaac, or, I'm sorry, even when Abraham goes to God and says, here's the problem, I don't have any offspring, so um, this guy from Damascus is going to inherit everything. So even, even a servant in the house has been rejected because God is going to fulfill his promise through Isaac, through the one that he gives. Um, now, you could argue and say, well, you know, but Ishmael was not his, his 
wife's son, and, and those other children were not his wife's sons. It was only Isaac that was born from Sarah. So, you know, it's still a gene, uh, genealogical thing. It's, it's just a little tighter on that. Well, where Paul goes next is he says, no, that's not going to work either. Because where he goes to next is the issue of um, uh, Isaac's children. So Isaac marries Rebekah. And Rebecca becomes pregnant after after Isaac has to pray for her because she too is sterile. She's not having any children. Uh, beginning in uh, uh, Genesis 25, beginning in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. So this is even more tight. You've got one father, you've got one mother, you've got not birth order. These are twins. They're in the womb at the same time. And yet God pronounces before they're born, before they've done anything, the older will serve the younger. And don't forget, in, in ancient Near East culture, the firstborn was a position of privilege. It was a position of honor. The firstborn would inherit the larger portion uh, than the other children. But what God announces here is, I haven't chosen the firstborn. I've chosen the secondborn, and he will be stronger. He will be the one that, that um, will um, inherit the promises, and the older will serve him. So even there, he turns it upside down. He, he chooses. He says, I chose this one, but not that one. And what happens is Jacob and Esau are born, and the promise goes through Jacob. But Esau, who becomes Edom, the nation of Edom, goes off his own way and is, is, is cut off. He doesn't you know, just disappear from the earth, but he's not blessed with the covenant blessing that Jacob was. And so Paul mentions those, and then he quotes Isaiah or uh, Malachi. Uh, chapter one, verses two and three, Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated. Um, he's talking in, in Malachi about the two nations. Uh, but again, we're looking at the children of Abraham and God is choosing one and rejecting the other. He's saying, I'm going with this, but I'm not going with that. Why? Because not all Israel are Israel. So the, the, the um, I forget what my heading was on that. <laughs> The, uh, the purpose, what I skipped over in the middle of that is this idea of God has chosen one and not chosen the other. And what Paul tells us is um, he does that so that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So when you look at God choosing Isaac, but not Ishmael, when you see him choosing Jacob, but not Esau, when you see him choose some of the Israelites, but not all of the Israelites, what we need to remember is God has a purpose in election. And he does this that his purpose in election might continue. That not start, not originate, but might continue. He has been doing this throughout history. He chose Abel over Cain. He chose Abraham out of all of the Ur of Chaldeans. He, he chose, he chose, he chose all the way through history. So his purpose in election might stand. What's his purpose in election? What is he accomplishing in electing some and, and passing over others? Um, there's a handful of different places we could go. I think the clearest and shortest answer is Ephesians chapter one, verses three through six. So here's what Paul says to the Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption for, to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So what Paul has just said there is God has chosen us in Christ. He's called us in Christ. He's sanctifying us in Christ, making us holy and blameless. And he's done that according to the purpose of his will. What is the purpose of his will? That his praise or that his glorious grace might be praised. So why did God choose some and not others? 
we can't flush all of that out right now. We're just beginning to scratch the surface. But his purpose in election is that his praise might be made known, that his grace might be shown to be glorious. And so he chooses some, and that's what he does. Now, the next section, the promise is going to show us what that looks like, and it's actually going to further that idea of his glory. So then the last section is Romans 9, uh, beginning in 14 and then through 18. So what we've seen in, in the, the, um, the purpose section is God chooses some. He, he picked uh, one over another. Uh, so the problem of Israel is not all Israel are Israel. Only the ones God chose to be Israel are Israel. And then they're the ones. So is this some radical new concept that just springs up? No, there's a promise attached to this. And here's how Paul explains it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. How That goes back to that question he asked previous. How can be God be just and the justifier of the ungodly? How can he justify ungodly people and still be a just God? So here he asks it in a slightly different way. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? That he would choose some, that he would have mercy on some. Is, is that in, unjust? By no means. This is nothing new. He says, for, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Um, so that's, that's the promise in the middle of this. So sets up the question, is it unjust for God to choose any? If they've all done this, if they all have turned aside, if they've all rejected him, is it unjust for God to say, I'm choosing some? And his answer is no means. And he goes back to the foundational covenant that God made with, with Israel, and he, he cites it. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We've got to remember the context that that's set in. It's easy in Romans to get lost from the story of Exodus. That statement that, that Paul just quoted comes from the epic ex, Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. So you remember Moses goes up on the mountain and God is giving him the law. He's giving him all of these, these instructions. And while he's up there, down in the valley, the people have waited. Oh, it's been 40 days. I, who knows what happened to him? Um, they turned to, to um, Aaron and say, make us a God. We need a God. So he fashions a golden calf and the people start worshiping it. Well, up on the mountain, God is not unaware of this. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So that was that was the problem. Do you see what's going on? Israel is down in the valley. Practicing idolatry within 40 days of God speaking to them from the mountain, the Ten Commandments, so terrifying that it scared them. And they've already in 40 days have violated it. They've already turned their hearts against it. And so the problem is God is looking and saying, look, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out and we'll just start over with you. Well, that's not what God wanted, or that's not what Moses wanted to happen. And so what he does is he cites God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to God. He said, you promised that you would do these things. And, and if you don't do these things, it's going to look like you couldn't. So don't do that. And so God relents. Moses goes down off the mountain. He disciplines the people. He returns back up the mountain. And in Exodus 33, God offers to deliver them. He says, okay, we've, we've solved that, but here's what's going to happen. Um, I will send an angel before you. He will clear out the way for the promised land. You guys go in and take it over, get settled. You're set. I'm not going with you. And Moses is, is not satisfied with that either. And so he intercedes and he prevails. And God says, okay, I'll go with you. Uh, Exodus 33, 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Um, and, and he said to him, that is, Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring me up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? 
it is not your going, is it not your going with us that, that um, makes us so distinct, I and your people, for every other people on the face of the earth? Doesn't that what sets us apart? Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do, for you have shown, you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said to him, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Do you see the context of that is, show me your glory. And his glory is, I'll have mercy on people. Um, I have already extended my mercy, Moses, in that I will go with you. I won't wipe them out. I won't start over with just you. So that's the context. Now look at it from Paul's perspective. He's looking at his entire nation who have turned away from Jesus. They not only turned away from him, they crucified him. They turned him over to the Gentiles on false trumped up charges and had him crucified. God incarnate. Don't forget what Paul said um, earlier in the chapter, verse five, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is looking at them and saying, this Christ they turned against and they crucified. What they did in the valley at the foot of the mountain was bad, but it wasn't as bad as killing God, as killing Jesus incarnate. And so when he looks at them, he's recalling that episode at, uh, at the mountain. He's recalling the golden calf, and he's seeing that the nation is far worse now than it was. And in the midst of that, he's hearing God's promise. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so that is the consolation for Paul. That is the hope that he has as he looks to his own kinsmen and he goes, as horrible as they have been, as horrible as I have been, God shows mercy. He can show mercy to them. He can extend that mercy to them. And how will he do that? Verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul is looking at those people and saying, as horrible as they have been, their salvation is not dependent on if they ask hard enough or if they work hard enough. Instead, it's on, it depends on God who has mercy. So his prayer is, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on them. So if it depends on that, then we have hope in light of Romans 3. So remember how, how Romans 3 got to that point with the, the list of problems. He says, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In light of that, what's ringing in Paul's ears is this truth. God has mercy. He will have mercy on whom he will. He will have compassion on whom he will. And so he, that's his hope. That's what he's, he's anchored in. And then he kind of fleshes out that, that Exodus story because he says, well, to Pharaoh, he said, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so what he says is he's hardened Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would do these things in order that he would gain glory over Pharaoh. And, and doesn't that sound cruel because God says, well, Pharaoh, you're just going to continue on doing that. He stealed Pharaoh's resolve to oppose him. And in Exodus 14, he says, uh, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 17, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So it sounds like that conflicts with mercy, doesn't it? I thought he would have mercy. And yet he says, I will harden them and I will destroy them and I will get glory over them. His glory is still a part of it. But that's not the end of the story for Egypt. There's more to come. Yes, he did that in that time period. And yes, the, um, the uh, people suffered under the, the 10 plagues um, or the, the, the 12 plagues, the 10 plagues, nine plagues plus one plague. Um, and they suffered when they went into the sea after them. But look at where this resolves, where this goes. Isaiah chapter 19, verse, uh, beginning of verse 22. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. 
That's Egypt. That's not Israel. That's Egypt he's talking about. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Oh, yeah, but they're pagans. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the middle of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So the, the, what happened in Egypt in the deliverance of Israel, it, it sounds like it was a bad deal. Pharaoh got hardened. The Egyptians got hardened. People died. It was a lot of suffering. But the end result was that God would be glorified. And God is glorified not, not only in the destruction of them, but also, according to Isaiah, in their salvation. They know that he is Yahweh, and he, they will come to him. And the Assyrians will know that he is Yahweh, and they will come to him. So that comes back to us. How can we be sure that we'll be saved? Well, he promises in Isaiah that he's going to save these, these um, pagans, these Gentiles. And he does. He, he does that very thing. The, the, the gospel goes out. And he saves all these people. And, and the good news is that since God has mercy, he is able to save even the worst of us. Um, consider Paul again. He was persecuting the church. He said that he didn't deserve to be saved because he was the chief of sinners. He opposed Christ. He arrested people. And yet God said, I've decided I'm going to have mercy on Paul. And so he meets him on the road to Damascus. He changes his heart. And Paul turns into the Paul that we know. So who do you know? Remember, don't leave the lost as a category, a nameless, faceless category. Who do you know in that group that we refer to as the lost? Put a face to it right now. Think of a name. Think of a person, a relationship that you've had. Let that make your heart ache. It should make your heart ache. And then remember, as hardened as they are, as opposed as they are, the banner that flies over that says, God has mercy. And that's exactly what he can do. That's, that's why this is good news. So though Israel is largely turned away from God, not all Israel are Israel. And there's hope. There's a way that he can save them. And that's where Paul is going to go. We'll, we'll have to unpack it more in the future. There's more to be said. But um, here's, a, here's a question for you. Why did God have mercy on you? Were you smarter than, than the person that he didn't have mercy on? Uh, had you behaved yourself better than the other person? God had mercy on you. And, and what's the purpose? What's his purpose in having mercy on you? What's his purpose in election? It, it's that his grace might be seen as glorious. So, how are we then to bring glory to God's grace since he's had mercy on us? Well, the first way is to treasure it, to remind ourselves, I didn't earn this. I didn't, I didn't, for a lot of us, we didn't go out of the way looking for it. God came to me and he saved me. He brought that to me. Treasure that kindness, treasure that mercy, recognize that covenant promise that he has mercy on whom he will and he has compassion on whom he will. And he had compassion and mercy on you. And thank you, Lord. So treasure it. The other thing that we're told in the Bible is, is Peter tells us to grow in grace. So that, that mercy, that grace that we've been given, you need to grow in it. You, you need to remind yourself of how sanctification works. Sanctification is God's work. It's by grace. But it's something that we engage in, too, because there are definite commands. Do this. Don't do that. And, and work at that. That's how you treasure grace more is by growing in grace more. And then we have to show it. Um, it, it, it's not some passive thing that washes over us. It's something that sinks deep into our heart. It, it should change what's going on deep inside us. And so we have to show it. We have to live in accordance with that grace that God has shown us and, and live in it and, and, and show it by the way that we live. Um, that's the, the grace that we have been given. That's the mercy that we've received. And so as we Think about how is it that we can be sure we've been saved. Um, don't forget that the problem of Israel is answered by God's purpose and election and his promise that he would save people, that he will be kind and merciful to folks. And so this is just beginning to crack that question open about what about Israel? And if they're not saved, 
then do we have hope? This is just beginning to scratch the surface. Where we're going to go next week is we'll finish out, I believe we're going to finish out uh, chapter nine, and then the week after we'll start into chapter 10. But the whole answer comes all the way through chapter 11. And so that's, that's where we're hopefully going to go. So this fits in the theme of the book of Romans overall, because Paul has said that we are saved, we are justified by faith. Um, and the question then is, is faith meritorious? Is it something that we muster up in ourselves? And the answer here is no, it's God's mercy. Uh, your faith is God's mercy to you. And so because we have been giving these tremendous things, we can, we can walk in them because we don't have to struggle to, to fabricate them or, or to strum up enough strength to do it. It's, it's God's work at in, at, in us. And so let's continue in that, um, in that hope that we have that God has mercy, not just for us. Thank you, Lord, that we had mercy on us, but for other people who you might consider to be unreachable. Um, they're not. God can save anyone at any time. And so we can just pray and say, Lord, would you have mercy on that person? And you just don't know. You, you never know what's going to happen. So let's close now in prayer. Lord, um, I can see a handful of faces uh, before me and think of a handful of names of people who don't know you who are walking in rebellion. Um, they're either in the category of the, the pagan who's self-indulgent or the moralist who thinks they're pretty good people, um, or the people who think that they're following the law. They're, they're following exactly what you've told them to do. And yet, Lord, they are far from you, um, either through religion or irreligion. And so, Lord, as I think of these family and friends, these people that I've known, Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on them and have compassion on them. And so, Lord, would you do those things we are trusting that you are powerful enough to accomplish all of these purposes. And so would you do that? And Lord, for our whole church, I pray that you would burden all of us this week with a name and a face or a handful or a couple of names and faces throughout this week that we might really earnestly pray to you for them and trust, Lord, that you can save them. You can draw them to yourself. You can bring them to justification through faith alone. And so, Lord, please do that. And Lord, I pray that you would do that even more, that you would accomplish more and more of that in people for the praise of your grace. And in, in your name, Jesus, we ask. Amen.